They forced me to have sex with as many as 50 customers a day. I had to give the pimp all my money. If I did not earn a set amount, they punished me by removing my clothes and beating me with a stick until I fainted, electrocuting me and cutting me. That's from Kolob, a sex trafficking survivor in Cambodia. According to Mexico's uh, federal attorney general, over the past five years, nearly 48,000 people have been killed in suspected drug-related violence. In his abduction, his abduction took place as he was sneaking back from the family rice field with his father. Five soldiers surrounded him wearing stolen Ugandan army uniforms, their telltale dreadlocks betraying their true identity. Is this your father? One of them asked. No, sir, said Norman. The soldier raised a large stick. Is this your father? Tell me. It is not my father. When asked why he denied this, he said, because if I accept, they would make me kill him. Somehow, though Norman convinced them of this lie, and his father was led away, they took Norman to a commander. Four teenagers beat him with large sticks. He was told, if you scream, we will kill you. Recalling the pain, Norman shakes his head. It was beyond, he says. My face swelled up. My eyes bled. By the end, you could not recognize me. From a distance, Norman's father... From a distance, Norman's father watched in tears as the boy passed out. Around two months into his abduction, Norman was forced to kill. When you kill for the first time, automatically you change. Out of being innocent to becoming guilty, you feel like you're becoming part of them. Norman was a 12-year-old boy from Uganda forced to be a soldier in the Lord's Resistance Army. And in 2012, 699,202 abortions were reported to the CDC. The question you have to ask yourself, actually more accurately, the question you probably didn't have to ask yourself is what's wrong with this? It's likely that hearing what I've just shared, a jarring offensiveness took place inside of you, a sense of what's right was violated. And I'm not going to spend time either defending or attacking the statistics and stories I just shared. As a matter of fact, I don't even really want to talk about them. I feel sick to my stomach thinking about them. I use them because I want to demonstrate something. And that is that each and every single person in this room, upon hearing those stories, had a deep and gut-wrenching response, a moral reaction to hearing what I've shared. Your sense of right and wrong was inflamed. My name is Mike Rutledge. I'm the director of arts. I'm one of the teachers here at K2. And we're in a series that we're calling Head to the Heart. And if you missed any of the previous weeks, I encourage you to go to the website or the app. You can check them out. You can watch them or listen to them. Um, and and I, I know this. Next week, we're going to be talking about how science points to the inevitability of a creator 
and you don't want to miss this week. Jason Dunn, our executive pastor, very, very smart individual with his doctorate in physics is going to be sharing some of that stuff. So you, you definitely don't want to miss. This week, though, we're going to be talking about morality and ethics and how they uh, lead to, to the reality of a God. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I told this joke in the first uh, service, so uh, they didn't get it. So... Um, I hope you're smarter than them, and if you want to appear smarter, just laugh when I'm done. But it is a bit of a thinker. So here, here's the joke about ethics and morality. It goes like this. Grandma sent, well, gra- Grandpa was talking to his grandson one day, and he said, hey, uh, what'd you learn in school today? And he said, I, you know what? I didn't really learn much. He said, oh, really? Why not? What did you talk about? The, the, the grandson said to the grandpa, well, we talked about ethics and morality. He said, oh, that's a tough topic. Hey, can I, can I tell you how I think about this? And the, the grandson said, sure, that'd be really helpful. And he said, okay, well, ethics and morality is kind of like this. When grandma sends me to the store and I buy something and the person at the desk gives me too, too much change, I have to decide whether or not I'm going to give that extra money back to grandma or not. takes a minute, but it's pretty funny. And I'm like standing there looking at these people like, seriously, you don't get that? Anyway, it's been said that electricity comes from electrons. Therefore, morality comes from morons, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. And that's what we're going to be talking about is how moral law or ethics point to the reality. I would argue the actual necessity that there is and must be a God. And I, want, I don't want to just stop there because I want to talk about, in a real practical sense, how the fact that we have a God who gives us morality should be shaping the world in which we live and your lives. And I'm going to just talk about four principles that I think lead us to this conclusion. Then I want to share a really practical Bible story that's really gruesome. If you don't read the Bible, you will after today, okay? But the first thing you need to know, point one, if you don't take it, write this down. The first thing you need to know is this. There is a universal moral law. There is a universal moral law. Now, don't confuse what I'm saying as that there is consensus. I'm not saying that we all agree about what is right and wrong. I'm saying that we all agree that there is right and wrong. Now, even those stories I shared, all of us had a reaction. Now, uh, I actually included the abortion story because I know that there are sides on this topic. The fight is still going on. And no matter whether you, which side of that argument you find yourself, there's one thing to be clear of. You're right. The other side is wrong. Right? We all have a sense of right and wrong, but here's the thing. You may be saying to me, oh, hold on, hold on. You just picked specifically inflaming or emotionally engaging uh, examples, and so I'm just emotionally responding. Not true. You know how I know this? Let me make it a little simpler. You may think it's okay to lie. You can justify why it's okay for you to lie until someone lies to you. You may think it's okay to steal from someone, but it's not okay for someone to steal from you. You may think it's okay to mock someone, 
until you get mocked. You may think it's okay not to help someone that you could help when they need it until you need help and someone doesn't help you when they could. See, it doesn't matter how far you have to go or how extreme you feel like you need to get. Eventually, there's a line in the sand and you step across it and you say, that is wrong. There is, point number one, there is a universal moral code. And I would argue this, it's not even the action that offends you. It's the intention behind it. If I'm walking down the street and I trip over someone's foot, I may be inconvenienced, but I'm not angry at the person. If I know the person deliberately tricked me, then I'm angry at the person, and my sense of right and wrong jumps to the forefront, and I know something wrong has happened. There is a universal moral law, point one. Point two, if there is a universal moral law, there must be a universal moral law giver. There must be a law giver. Pascal said there is within every person a God-shaped vacuum. And in the writing Lessons of History by Ariel and Will Durant, they say this, there has never been a significant example of a morality apart from belief in God. Now, I'm not even going all the way to saying, talking about God. I'm just saying there has to be something that gives us moral law. And the only way, the only valid argument that you can use to say there is no moral law giver would be to embrace a philosophy called descriptivism. Really simple. You know what descriptivism is? It just describes what is as facts without assigning any moral intention or generation to it. Does that make sense? Like this. It is a tree. Right? That's descriptivism. I'm just just describing what is. You cannot make a normative statement. And even saying it is a tree actually is a normative statement because in descriptivism, what you do is you value everyone's opinion and moral uh, code equally. Therefore, you can call it a tree. He calls it a monkey. Who's right? We don't know because we're all equal. There's no good, there's no evil, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no what ought to be, there's only what is. And that's a problem. And the central problem is this, that we just talked about our incensed reaction when we cross a line, but under descriptivism, which is our only viable option to say that there's no moral law giver, There would be no way you could justify your emotional or your moral response to those initial things we talked about. Sex slave trafficking is not wrong under that. It's just what is. Raping children is not wrong. It's just what is. And if that's the case, then why do our souls cry out against those very things? Under descriptivism, it's impossible to say that anything ought or ought not to be which violates the fact that we live, in, uh, uh, live with universal moral code. Charles Colson, in his book Against the Night, he says this. Well, even before that, th- this is really interesting. Let me just say this. If what I just said leaves you unsatisfied, 
then you are left with one option, and that is you must face the question of who ought to have the ultimate validating authority, who gets to play God in decisions. It's the only option you have left. You have to decide where does the authority of what's right and what's wrong come from. Charles Colson, in his book, Against the Night, he says this, in the world it is called tolerance, but in hell it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. That is descriptivism. And it's the only viable option we can choose to say there's no moral lawgiver. And it fails on every count. The Bible would say it this way. In Romans 1, it says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. That's how the Bible talks about it. There must be a moral lawgiver. Which leads us to point three. If there's a moral law giver, then there must be something outside of us or outside of the universe. The only response, if you disagree with that statement, would be to be a personalist or a relative, relative truth. You've heard relativistic truth. You've heard about that a lot. And that's where I make my, your truth, my truth, your values, my values, your morals, my, my morals, right? Uh, Barna research, very interesting. In a recent survey on what Americans believe, they confirm this scenario. We are in danger of becoming a nation of relativists. The Barna survey asked, is there absolute truth? Amazingly, 66% of American adults responded that they believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. Different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct. Is it a chair? Is it an apricot? Doesn't matter. And when you take it between the ages of 18 and 25, the percentage goes up to 72%. Almost three quarters of the people say relativism is the answer. There's no absolutes. I want to tell you immediately when I hear about personalism, you know, you create your own truth, your own morals, your own values, you believe that. And you hear this all the time, I can, I can believe whatever I want as long as no one gets hurt, as long as I don't hurt anyone. Guess what? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. E eventually, you will hurt someone or yourself. And I would say this too, by the way, back to that first thing, there's a moral code. If you want to argue that, that the differences of agreement are just about different personalities, answer this question really quickly. I forgot to say this, but answer this question. Why then are there times in your life when you've done something that no one will necessarily ever find out about? You think to yourself, I did something wrong. I will say this, that personalism or relativistic truth is, is just a theory or the mindset of a narcissist who wants to create their own world and their own set of rules to do whatever I want. And guess what? You will hurt someone. And the reason I say that, there's no pragmatist doing this. And a great, so so uh, think, think of it this way. Um, here, here's some good examples. Um, think of it like this. 
uh, our Constitution, right, was put in place by our founding fathers. They had the ultimate authority to put it in place, right? Why? Because we elected them officials. Our current elected officials, they're the ones who are making the laws for the country. They get to decide. Uh, you think of uh, the NFL commissioner. He's the only person who can decide if clipping is a 15-yard penalty or a two-yard penalty. It's up to him. Imagine this. He, this, this would be the relativistic approach. You'll get it really quickly here now. Uh, uh, the NFL commissioner decides, you know what? I want to be more, more, more current. I want to have a relativistic thought process. Guys, you all just decide for yourselves what the rules are. So stomping on someone's head is now, for this guy, it's acceptable. My touchdown counted for 55 points and game's over. No, it's not. We have 10 more minutes. <laughs> Think of a second grade teacher who goes, class, you just decide what you need to learn. You decide what's acceptable, a good way to treat each other. You decide what, how much homework. If we even need homework, maybe you shouldn't do homework. Right? See, in a practical world, it doesn't work. In theory, you can make a lot of things work, but it doesn't work. And so this whole idea of relativism or relativistic truth is definitely a theorist's standpoint, not a pra practitioner's. G.K. Chesterton, and I'll say this, we have a couple resources I want to encourage you to buy at our bookstore in the lobby today. One is the G.K. Chesterton book called Orthodoxy, and the other one is C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, brilliant books on this topic specifically. Chesterton says this, great wits are off to madness near allied. Great wits are off to madness near allied. You know what he's saying? Sometimes you can't tell if someone's crazy or genius because they look a lot alike. And the reason he says this, he goes on to say this, a man who thinks himself a chicken is to himself as normal as a chicken. Oddities only strike ordinary people. Oddities do not strike odd people. Why do I tell you that? Because what I'm saying is this, that the truth has to live outside of you to be validated. If I create my own truth, there's no possible way of any measurement against which I can tell if it's true. You want to know how to know something is exactly 36 inches long? You take a yardstick and measure it. You don't take this thing and go, I think it's about 36 inches long. Let me see. Let me measure it by itself. Yep, it is. You have no way of telling unless something is outside of the source. And the same is true with moral law and ethics. You have to look outward to have a validating principle. Truth and morality only exist, if it only exists within each person, there's no way to determine the validity versus the insanity of the thought process you have. Francis Schaeffer said, if there are no absolutes by which to judge society, then the society becomes absolute. That's a problem. God's word would say it this way. There's a way that seems right to a man but it ends, but its end is the way of death. Which leads to the fourth point, which is this. Therefore, there must be something beyond our universe, and that is God. Uh, my friend Lloyd uh, told me I got to read this article by, by this guy. His name is Arthur Allen Leff, and he wrote, this was published in the Yale, Heart, uh, the Yale Law Journal, 
and it was an attempt to go through validating uh, a system of law, a system of morality, a system of ethics with no ultimate authority. That was the purpose of his, to, to disprove that we need authority, right? And so he writes this, and in, along the way he talks about some of these things, descriptivism, pluralism, he talks about all this stuff, and every time he gets to the end, he goes, well, that won't work, that won't work, that won't work. And so he's left with this problem, and he concludes at the end of this, his summation at the end of this article is this. And by the way, it's called uh, Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law, or it's been subtitled by many, The Grand Says Who. And here's what he says. All I can say is this. It looks as if we are all we have. Given what we know about ourselves and each other, this is an extremely unappetizing prospect. Looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Neither reason nor love nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. If Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us could law be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. As things now stand, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. For those who stood up and died resisting Hitler, Stalin, Amin, and Pol Pot, and even General Custer, too, have earned salvation. Those who acquiesced deserve to be damned. There is in this world such a thing as evil. And altogether now, says who? God help us. The reason you had morality-based objections to these horrific stories I told at the beginning is because of this very important fact. Don't miss this. You are created, Genesis 1 tells us, we are created in the image of God. And what do we know about God? We know tons. And we know this, that he is a just God. We know that he not only is a loving God, he is love He's holy, he's good, he's gracious, and your objections are based on the fact that you're, you're made in his image carrying those same qualities within you, and your, those qualities were offended by the things that people do. That's why your morality was offended when you hear those terrible stories. But I don't want to just leave it like that, so there's a God. I want to share with you a story that we find in the book of Judges, a very interesting story that I think brings really practical legs to what this should mean in our life. And interestingly enough, if you know anything about the Old Testament, I'll just tell you this, if you don't read the Bible, you're just missing out. Like this, I'm going to tell you a story that Hollywood hasn't even written yet. It's crazy, absolute crazy stuff. And the book of Judges is interesting. It happens at a specific time in the life of the nation of Israel about from 1385 to about 1050 B.C., about 335 years. And in that time, Israel didn't have a king to govern them. And they were ruled by these judges that would come up. And when they would have some disagreement about something or they'd try and figure out what they were supposed to do as a nation, they would go to the judge and the judge would decide based on what God had told them to do as a nation, okay? And some people say this book could have appropriately been named the Book of Failures because it chronicles the failures of the people of Israel in the first chapter. It starts by outlining the failures of seven of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, it just goes, okay, let's talk about our first failures. Just ticks them all down. Now, and just, again, so the twi- Abraham 
had Isaac as his son, Isaac had Jacob as his son, and Jacob had his 12 sons, and his 12 sons became the tribes of Israel, okay? So, and it, it, it just details all of, all of the failures. And the repeated failure that kept happening with Israel was something really simple. It was their refusal to fully commit to completely following God. They would partially follow God, they would reject God, but they wouldn't fully follow God, okay? And, and what you see in this book is very interesting. You see seven dis- distinct sin cycles. And the sin cycle looks like this. By the way, check this out. See if maybe it applies. It's called sin. What I learned in Bible college, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. It works like this. You do something wrong. You violate what you're supposed to do. You sin. And in Israel, they would go into servant, servitude. They would fall prey to other nations and be, you know, they'd have to serve the other nations. Sin, servitude. They'd cry out to God, supplication. God would hear their voice and bring salvation. Anyone experience that in your life about five times a day? So if you understand anything about this book, let me, let me just... A little bit further. So the book follows the book of Joshua. And what happens, here's the way it goes. Moses was leading Israel. Remember, they were captive to uh, Egypt. They were slaves to Egypt for about 430 years. And then Moses leads them out of Egyptian slavery. And they wander because of disobedience for 40 years. And that generation of disobedient people die off completely, all of them, and Joshua becomes the new leader of the people of Israel. You have the book of Joshua, which details these amazing, miraculous conquests, and they enter the promised land. Now, Judges happens. And as Joshua is about to die, they've taken possession of the promised land. And Joshua says, I want to give you a couple tips about what God wants for you and the way you can be successful moving forward. Okay. And he says, here it is. Pretty simple. All of our previous successes have been solely due to one thing, our complete, utter, full obedience to God's word. And all of your future successes will be completely, utterly, fully dependent on your following God. All right? This is where we find at the end of Joshua where he's dying. He tells them all these things. Hey, make sure you follow all of these instructions. Don't deviate from them. Don't turn away from them. Walk in all his ways. Obey his commands. He goes on and on. You find this famous verse you probably all know where he says, Choose today who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right. That's that. That's at the end, just before he's ready to die. And this is so beautiful because the next thing it says, the people replied, we would never forsake God and serve other gods. Judges chapter 2. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what, they had, nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil. In the eyes of the Lord. We will never serve other gods. Now they do evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> then we get to the very last three chapters of the book of Judges, and here's a crazy story. We'll call this guy Lee. We don't know his name, but he was a Levite. He was living in Ephraim, which is one of the territories in Israel. 
and he takes on a concubine. A concubine, the way to think of a concubine is um, to think of it as like a, a slave that's been elevated to a second wife kind of status, okay? And it refers to her as his wife. And so he takes this concubine on, this wife on, and um, so, but she's unfaithful and she leaves and goes back to her land, which is in the land of Benjamin, and she lives with her dad. So four months pass, and Lee says, I gotta go get my wife back. So he decides to take a couple donkeys and his servant, and he travels across the land, and he lands at the house of the father of his wife, and he says, I'm here to get my wife back, and, and the dad says, well, just hang out for a few days. So he stays for a day, and he's like, I gotta go. No, another day. He ends up staying, convincing him to stay for four days, and on the fifth day, he's like, dude, I am peace out. I've gotta go. I'm taking my wife. So he takes his wife, and they leave and to travel back to Ephraim. All right, easy story so far. Everything looks good. Now, what happens, though, is it gets late at night as they're traveling, okay? And so they decide, well, we should stop here for the night because it's kind of late. It's too, too, too uh, dark to travel, not safe. And uh, so they decide to stay in this uh, city called Gibeah, which is, again, in the land of Benjamin, and uh, so they do, and what they do in that time, you would travel to the city center, which is probably like where the well was and stuff like that. It's kind of a real obvious place. And they stop there because the courteous uh, customary hospitality would be that someone would come and say, hey, uh, you come stay with me for the night. and Let me wash your feet and give you food and, and, and give you a place to stay. And if you need you know, more supplies for your trip back, I'll provide that. But interestingly enough, he lands at, uh, ben, you know, in, in, in Gibeah, and no one really does that for him the whole day. And then eventually, late at night, uh, late at night, some guys, it says an old man's coming back from his fields, and uh, he sees him, and he's like, he's like, hey, you're from Ephraim? I'm from Ephraim, too. Why don't you come stay at my house? So great. He goes to the guy's house, and, uh, and they, he washes their feet, and he gives them food, and now the craziness begins. So they finished dinner, and it says, wicked men from the town surrounded the house and began pounding on the door saying, send dude out, we want to violate and sodomize him. What? But the old man, thinking, you know, uh, cultural customs better than chivalry to the opposite sex, says, no, 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 no. He, says, he actually says this, no, don't do that. That's an outrageous thing. Instead, take my virgin daughter and his concubine and do whatever you want with them. Woo, glad someone has reason. <laughs> but they say, no, we don't want to do that. And they keep pounding on the house. Finally, the Levite gets pretty stressed out. He actually pushes his wife out the door and they take her good solution. And here's what it says. I'll leave details out. But it says they take her and took turns with her doing terrible things the whole night. And at dawn, they release her. She drags herself back to the house of this old man and dies on the doorstep. Wow. Wow. So Lee packs up his stuff, he gathers his wife, puts her on a donkey, and he heads back to his hometown. And when he gets back to his hometown, he says, this is not okay. I'm going to send a letter to all the 12 tribes, and what I'm going to do 
is I'm going to give them a physical representation. And he cuts the woman into 12 pieces. It says, uh, uh, according to her bones, that's like a priest uh, cutting a sacrifice up. And he cuts her into 12 pieces in which he sends one piece to each of the, other, each of the tribes in Israel to say, something's got to be done. That's not okay. And when the 11 tribes hear about this, they're like, dude, what? So they contact the tribe of Benjamin, and they say, send us the perpetrators. We're going to deal with this. Okay, finally, a close to this story. The Benjaminites, of course, say, nope, we'd rather fight you in battle. So 400,000 of the Israelite tribes assemble their warriors, and they come against 26,000 of the Benjamite tribe to have battle. And in the first two days, the Benjamite tribe is prevailing. So they devise a plan on day three to go back to battle and then look like they're getting defeated and retreat. And they do. It's working perfectly. The Benjamites come out to chase them, and they had men hiding in the fields that rush in from behind and start attacking them from behind at the same time as the people in the front turn back to fight. And a group of people rush into the town of Benjamin, or Gibeah, and they burn and destroy the whole town. And the Benjamites look back, they, it says they see the billowing smoke and their hearts sink and they, lie, they die. So now we have a problem because the, the 11 Israelite tribes go, wait a second, we just obliterated one of the 12 tribes, there's only 11 left. And they, but they find out quickly, okay, wait, 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 seven, 600 of the people escaped. So we got to figure something out. They send a peace treaty to Benjamin and say, okay, we're going to make this right. And they come up with this great plan. They say, well, okay, wait, we have a problem because we'd made a vow never to offer our daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. But we've got to repopulate this tribe I know. So when we do the festival of the Lord, it's customary for the unmarried, the unwed women to come out and do this like dance of fertility or something like that. And they tell the Benjamites, hey, you hide in the, in the, in the you know, fields. And when they start doing this dance, rush out and kidnap one. Take them back to your land as your wife that's in ruins and Make that your family and repopulate the tribe. But then the fathers and the sons are going to be angry about this. But you know what? We just tell them this. Don't worry. You didn't violate the vow because you didn't offer your daughter. They just stole them. And so they go, okay. And then they return to their land. And then we find this really interesting verse, and we see this phrase repeated in three of the last four chapters of Judges. And it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, and then it adds this in the very last verse, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Descriptivism, relativism, personalism, all of this stuff, everyone did what seemed right to him, and it worked out swarmingly. And then the book of Judges ends. Why do I share this story? This is the story of you and I 
when we refuse to fully, ultimately, utterly, completely follow God and take morality and truth into our own hands. See, I said at the start, we're going to be talking about how moral law absolutely demonstrates that there's a God and that it should be shaping our world. But, but too many of us believe a very, very fundamental lie I want to share with you, and it's the reason we turn to these things. We find it way back in the garden. You want to know why we have problems today? Just always read the first part of Genesis. You'll always find the answer. Genesis chapter 3 says this. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. God knows in that day you eat from it. Talking about the tree. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What's the lie? Let me rephrase it. You're not. God, listen. God is holding out on you. Listen, he's putting all these restrictions on you so you can't fully enjoy life. Those morals, they're keeping you from doing whatever, and God's, he, he's bamboozling you, man. And we still believe that lie to this very day. The reality is God has put morals as a compass in our heart because it guides us back to him and gives us the very life that he designed for us to have. And in the minute that we walk away from his plan and believe the guy, lie that he's holding out on us rather than trying to lead us to the right place, we're doomed, just like the book of Judges. Yeah, electricity may come from electrons, but morality does not come from morons. It comes from the heart of God, and it's implanted in you, in his image. Here's what I want to do as we close this morning. I'm going to have the band come out. We're going to change into a time of musical worship. We're also going to take our offering. And I just want to share one other verse with you. It's in Isaiah. It says this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Let me ask you something. You feel like your life is characterized by peace? You feel like sometimes there's just something, like, man, no, I just, I, I, I'm at odds with myself. I'm going to tell you the answer is really simple. Peace comes when our mind is fixed on God and when our trust is completely in doing what he calls us to because that is what's best for us. And when we do the things that we think will sacrifice for all of that, we substitute the lie for the truth, we end up at war with ourselves, like the civil war that happened with Israel and Benjamin. And just FYI, it happens every day all day in every single decision you make you choose to honor God or yourself and we're gonna we're gonna take an offering here and I'm, I'm just gonna say this to you you probably might not like hearing this but I'm gonna tell you this here, here's a great example a great example 
of a lie we believe. We believe that if I just hold on to all my money, I don't give any back to God, my 100% is gonna be better than my 90% with God's blessing because I know there is no way possible that God can, there's no way he could multiply five loaves and two fish to feed thousands. I know that much. Don't be foolish. I'm just gonna hold on to everything and protect my own life, do my thing that I think is right. And I'm just telling you in those weird things, Gideon killed the Midianites with 300 men. And every single one of us has the ability to trust God fully and see him conquer the Midianites and the Philistines and Delilah and all that stuff, but it's not gonna happen until we believe in him. I want you guys to pray with me. I know that every single one of us right here this this morning, we're in an ongoing struggle to make you the actual king. We want you to be the king in our life, but we just don't trust you. Somewhere along the way, we just don't trust you. And uh, we confess that. Forgive us for our lack of belief. Fill our hearts with the faith we need to trust in you. Take us to the places where we have to take steps into the water that goes over our heads. Help help us make you the guide and the source of our life. We pray that you will lead us to new places where we can experience the successes that Joshua felt, the miracles that were expressed in the life of Israel because they believed in you. We love you, Jesus. Jesus. 